Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Gigabit Nation, broadband talk radio. I'm your host, Craig Fettles, and I want to thank everyone in the audience for taking time to be with us today. Our mission is to provide information to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get faster, better broadband everywhere it needs to be. Uh, last Thursday on the show, we had a panel of community broadband experts and advocates who discussed FCC Chairman Janikowski's Gigabit City Challenge, which was a challenge to industry and communities to get at least one citywide gigabit network in every state. Uh, one of the challenges that we pointed out uh, during that show is the collection of states that have anti-municipal network laws. And while these laws do indeed present barriers, it's possible that maybe too many communities have let these become bigger barriers than they need to be. Uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, and other cities in that state's uh, research triangle decided to break through this uh, legislative glass ceiling uh, for municipal networks by partnering with uh, Gig.U and opening the doors to some private sector companies to uh, advance for this region, this this, uh, research triangle region, uh, a gigabit broadband initiative. Now, Wilson, uh, North Carolina may be the first gigabit city in that state, but this research triangle could be the state's first gigabit region. Now, with us today to talk about their project is Gail Roper, who is Raleigh's CIO. Gail, welcome to the show, and thank you for coming in to give us a scoop on what's going on down there. Welcome, Craig, and good afternoon. So we, uh, you know, we've chatted a little bit before uh, before the show, and and it's really interesting to get the the insight of what's going on there. Let's talk, I guess, first about the, the the barrier. I mean, North Carolina is almost a poster child for, you know, legislative challenges that communities have had to deal with, and I feel that you guys have come up with a very good, solid approach to working around that. But but what is it that you're you're dealing with down there? Well, I w- I would say that um, the House Bill um, 129, uh, known as the Homestead Act, is very clear in, in regard to uh, what municipalities uh, can and cannot do uh, in competition with um, our incumbents, providers, telecom providers, and and for us, you know, it's not really working around it, but uh, working within the confines of uh, that legislation and, and trying to find win-win solutions um, to to bring about the necessary telecommunications and ultra-high-speed broadband that we need in, in this region. And we really approached it really, you know, you're uh, not from a uh, jiu-jitsu a perspective, maybe more from a, a yoga perspective, <laughs> in, that, <laughs> in that you know we're we're really wanting to find uh, a win-win compromise so that we do um, what we do best as a municipality, and uh, the universities and the private sector um, come to the table as well. I think we're face we face the same thing our government faces in finding uh, compromises so that we can ultimately move forward and collaborate and and provide the kind of telecommunications networks that we need to drive economic development. Mm-hmm. So I am going to go out on the limb here and say that the, the need for speed, uh, serious broadband speed, is pretty significant in – North Carolina, and that if a a solution presents itself to uh, to individuals and to local businesses and so forth, you really won't have a lacking of people to subscribe to to that service. Am I am I not correct? That is, that is correct. Um, with the number of uh, universities and uh, health institutions and research. Uh, being done in the region, that there really is a need for uh, high-speed broadband services. One of the things that we've talked about um, in the past has been applications that um, would be conducive to a gigabit speed uh, network. And, you know, we have um, varying interest um, from 
the area in regard to um, uh, health IT, and in particular for for the city of Raleigh, it is um, quickly becoming the norm for us to uh, rely heavily on video and cameras uh, just in the day-to-day uh, activities and, and work that we do as a as a innovative municipality. So we see it both from uh, the private sector and public sector sides. We've had um, examples given uh, in regard to uh, a DNA sequence and the amount of power that it takes uh, to transmit those kinds of research uh, streams through uh, a network. So we see more and more of a need, particularly because of where we are located in the country. Mm-hmm. Now, the um, the thing that made the news was your partnership with Gig.U, and Gig.U has been talked about on this show, on this show, and and Blair Levin has been a guest on this show. But here we have, you know, the real world end product that Blair has been talking and preaching about for the last uh, the last few months. Describe the Describe the partnership that you've formed, both with that organization, but also with the other communities in the in the triangle. Sure. So, so what we have here is an effort uh, that is really being led um, by the universities and uh, our host communities and, and other partners to to speed up the deployment of ultra high speed broadband services uh for businesses, institutions and consumers. The the innovation um in it uh to me really is the the collaboration and when we look at it um in regard to what's needed to get this kind of um high speed network up and running, we look at it from the perspective of assets, network assets. And what it gives us the opportunity to do as a municipal organization is to contribute assets to this initiative. So basically, the municipalities, which include um, Raleigh, Cary, uh, Chapel Hill, uh, Durham, some of the chambers have been involved in discussions, Duke University, uh, North Carolina State University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, uh, Wake Forest University, and uh, Winston-Salem. So basically uh, what we're doing is collaborating and offering up assets that we have. Assets in many instances are excess assets for the government sector from the standpoint of we may not be using all of the bandwidth that we have. We may not be using all of the fiber strands that we have for day-to-day operational uh, duties. So basically, these uh, the fiber that we have and these uh, this offering really is offering those that fiber so that an incumbent or any of the uh, respondees to our RFP that will go out on February 1st could come in and uh, up, uh, allow those assets to be a part of the overall solution. Mm-hmm. So it's been a uh, an interesting mix of. Um, creativity, uh, if you will, and uh, willingness to open up to a range of resources and potential allies, that's the core of this whole approach, right? I would say so. I I think it it is the absolute public-private partnership because what you have here is we have government to university, uh, we have government to government, and we have government to private sector. So it kind of puts everybody in a win-win situation where some of the things that we couldn't do or would not be able to do on our own, we could potentially have the resources um, to build this kind of network. It's really, I think, the only way that it's going to happen in this region. Mm -hmm. I would also say that if you look at some of the um, successes in uh, fiber-to-the-home initiatives, um, usually, um, not in all instances, but in most instances, they are uh, communities that have um, that the municipality owns the electric utility. So there are some advantages there, and that's not the case here um, mm-hmm. with any with any of our municipalities. So basically, we just kind of scale to um, what we can do to benefit the uh, the effort in general. 
Mm-hmm. Now, and, and I think also, okay. Craig, that it is um, it, it's somewhat similar to the Google model in Kansas City, Kansas, Kansas City, Missouri, in that it's a shared asset model. And I think mm-hmm. that's innovative in itself. That's a, that's really a new model for uh, for the country. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, this is um, you know happening there, which is a uh, you know I think I think some people have written had written off. North Carolina after the bill passed and you know, and said, well, this is you know community broadband is dead, but I think that uh, that that might have been a little maybe overly dramatic, uh, but it does require a different set of uh, private sector companies in my mind, not the, the sort of the typical incumbent protectionist kind of approach, but uh, for example, I was in a, in a, a group of folks in California from California cities. And um, uh, one of the one of the people that approached me was a service provider, but it was a small service provider. You know, never heard of them before. Not you know through any fault of their own, they're just a small group. However, they were willing to work in whatever way communities were interested to come up with services that would go across a fiber network. So they, in, in essence, they didn't really care who owned, say, the fiber. They cared about, you know, would there be subscribers? Would there be a working relationship that would allow them to to do business and also make money? And and he was very much the guy that approached me was very much interested in driving these kinds of relationships. Is that pretty much what we're talking about? There is in in North Carolina or in, you know in, in the triangle is finding those providers willing to look at this thing from a different perspective than we'll call traditional incumbent thinking. I think so. I think that, you know, what we'll see um, once the RFP is released, and it will actually go out on February 1st, it's going to be uh, released by an organization here uh, in North Carolina called uh, Triangle J. And I think what we will see is um, a great deal of innovation in terms of who responds I think it'll be uh, across the board in terms of new companies, companies that perhaps are, you know, just beginning to understand the um the innovation and the value in uh, a gigabit uh network. And I think also that um may, we may have some of the traditional uh companies respond as well. I think the key though is for the um the responses to be in line with um, what we want here in North Carolina to drive um, economic development and to to impact what we want here in terms of innovation. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess I think the first question that would come up by a number of listeners would be, um, what uh, leverage does the community have to ensure that it gets what it that it gets what it needs from the the eventual deal, from the eventual service that comes into place, and you know, and I'm and I think of the first article that I saw, which was actually in the Chapel Hill uh, newspaper, that said, well, you know, this, the communities will not have leverage in terms of contractual because of the way the House bill is is created. So if that's I mean, I, I sort of look at that and say that's a surmountable issue. But but bottom line, how does the uh, how does the community assure that it gets what it wants in the end? I, I would think that um, what we would do uh, during the uh, process and the deliberations and and the responses is to really talk about and make it clear uh, what's important to uh, the communities. Mm-hmm. I think uh, when you when the RFP goes out, I think you will think uh, you will see that we were explicit in terms of what we felt would be required to enhance communities. So, um, without saying more than that in regard to um, what we will ask for, we will ask um, we will ask for those um, things that we believe will be. Uh, conducive to uh, community-led uh, innovation, entrepreneurship, 
um, enabling uh, communities and, and schools. So some of those uh, some of those things I think we will have to have, and you know I I believe that that's part of uh, the negotiation uh, process that we we want this world class gigabit speed network, but we also want it to benefit businesses and schools and healthcare institutions. We we will have to have that. Mm-hmm. That's which which is a good thing. I mean I. I uh... You know, I look at, uh, say, Kansas City, for example, and one of the issues to me has been uh, this is a good deal in the overall, but there also have been points along the way, you know, from when they were when the deal was first announced into where they are today, where there were questions in my mind of if push came to shove on an important issue. Would the city of Kansas City be at a disadvantage because ultimately Google owns the network, and I think that's the that's the fear, right? Because you get a lot of the plus the plus side. What do we do to have that um, you know that push come to shove moment where look, this is really important to us. We need to have this as a community, and you know, and what do you do in those kinds of situations? Which I, I'm gathering that you have you've thought through in the development of this RFP. Boy, have we. So, so we we spent a lot of time um, defining what we would need, but also uh, really doing a, a kind of a gap study in terms of if we were ha- we were having to do this ourselves, what would be the pieces and parts of it that we could not come to the table and provide? So you know, government has. Uh, government budgets have shrunk. Um, staffing is limited. So basically, there's some areas around maintenance, um, fiber cuts. There, there are various areas that we know would be beneficial for us as a municipal entity not to have to worry about. So um, we're looking really to uh, to fill in the gaps and and make it a win-win scenario. For, for all involved, and and I think too, you know, if you, you you have to really focus in on where you are today, and understand that um, there's always room to improve what you're doing, and I think I think that's part of the the Kansas City um, Google initiative is to kind of put in perspective where you are today, and how do you re- how do you create this level playing field and sometimes that might not be fiber to the home but it might be fiber to the schools or fiber to libraries or you know utilizing uh fiber um uh, excess fiber in underserved areas so i think it, i think it's going to require a lot of um thinking i think there there will be a lot of think tanks around where we go next I think that um we don't have all the answers today and I and I can honestly say in my uh, in my uh working with uh with my CIO counterparts the hardest thing for us was to you know to have this um be kind of open ended uh in regard to what we will end up with because we won't really know until we get uh past negotiations and we expect that that may take a while Mm-hmm. And you know, just being comfortable with the fact that um, we we don't have all the answers today was very difficult for us, partly because of the work that we do and uh, our nature as as technologists, but also because um, it, it has to be open ended until we can come to um, some sort of uh, win win situation for everyone. Mm-hmm. Now, as I mentioned. Um Blair Levin was on the show uh, a few weeks ago to talk about the the Gig.U program, right? So we've heard from him, you know, exactly how this thing is supposed to unfold and what the elements are and so forth. From your perspective, tell us what what it's like for a city. What should a city expect in uh, working with Gig.U to to develop a, a proposal, to develop a way forward? 
And Miao, you want to start with just explaining, you know, how you see, you know, how would you define gig.u to other communities from your perspective? Okay. So we know that um, the GigU is a national initiative, and I would encourage everyone to go to the GigU uh, site and um, really kind of look at the objectives and the mission. But it's a, gr a group of uh, 37 um, research institutions from across the United States. And, you know, their whole objective really is to deploy ultra-speed networks. So as we were working with them, um, the municipal CIOs and the university CIOs, we really had to uh, kind of break and meet um, as a, as a, uh, separate groups, talk about interests and, and concerns, and then kind of get back together and collaborate on uh, what those needed to be overall. Uh, one of the things that I, I think um, has been uh, an advantage uh, to us is that we found a way to have those uh, conversations and to do that in a healthy manner and kept our eye on the mark of having this gigabit uh, network and not get bogged down um, on issues that were different because universities work differently from municipalities. Mm -hmm. And th and then I I also think, you know, getting our legal folks. So we had quite a bit of governance around the conversation. So we, of course, had our attorneys and uh, come to the table. Um, we had um, another firm that we um, partnered with to come to the table so that we made sure that we were um, operating within uh, the confines of uh, of uh, the House bill, and um, and that we were still overall looking out for the good of uh, our citizens as a municipality. So the universities have a little bit different uh, customer base in some ways, and that they're they're uh, they're students, but you know our communities are are stable, and we absolutely uh, found ways to to get our language um, out there that uh, related to what we wanted to do from uh, a, a community enablement per perspective and how we wanted to uh, touch individuals and uh, connect underserved communities. So I think we're in uh, good good shape there. Mm -hmm. So now let's talk a little bit more about um, Resolution. Uh, we've had a couple of folks, guests over, over the last year and a half, who are indeed involved with uh, regional projects. You know, 20, 30 communities coming together. And all of these seem to be doing fairly well. And they have gotten these folks on the same page. Everyone will say, you know, right off the bat, it's a lot of hard work. There are headaches galore when you get 25, you know, folks who are used to doing it alone all of a sudden now working together. From your experience, what kinds of uh, challenges are there to get everybody on the same page? But once you once you, you do that, then then how do you keep everything moving forward? Because I would assume the bigger challenge is actually getting them on the same page to start. And then once you have that, you know, the maintenance isn't necessarily easy every day, but it's probably easier than that first. You know, we gotta we gotta get them all in the same you know singing from the same choir book here. So let me let me speak from the community per perspective. So part of my job here um, at the city of Raleigh is not only uh, CIO, um, but I also um, am community relations uh, chief. So basically, what we've done over the last few years is to really build an ecosystem around pushing technology out to our community. We call it Raleigh Connected. And we've had um, an advisory board that consists of uh, community people, uh, grassroots folks, some private sector folks, and, of course, staff. And we have done quite a bit in terms of uh, lighting up uh, underserved communities. So, okay. um, back a few years ago, we were able to um, to, to get a grant from stimulus funds for about 1.4 million dollars, and we partnered again with uh, with the corporate uh, world uh, to uh, make technology available and affordable for uh, for individuals. We did um, quite a bit of analysis 
um, as it related to census data to find out um, where these communities were, the ones that we didn't know. We were somewhat surprised by some of it, but not, not totally. And um, we began to uh, put uh, broadband into uh, housing developments, uh, underserved areas. So we got almost, I think, almost 1,500 households in, in low-income communities in our city. We've kept this advisory board throughout, and um, we bring people uh, of interest who have interest, um, both community-based and uh, private sector folks to the table, and we talk about what's next, what's important uh, to the community. One of the things that has grown out of that is uh, we have a youth initiative called Digital Connectors where we actually bring students in and uh, train them on uh, technology. We, we partnered with the private sector on that, and we teach them to teach digital literacy. And then we work um, with them to go back into uh, their uh, the, to the community um, with a uh, multi-generational approach uh, with these young people, showing their elders how technology leads to knowledge. So we kind of call that the, the knowledge network. And that is, um, that's been in existence now. We're in our third year uh, with with that. So I think, you know, part of it is, you know, away from the technology piece and has everything to do with the collaborative aspect of bringing people together, um, not assuming what's important to them, but asking and understanding um, what is important to them, and then capitalizing on the community assets. And in this particular situation, we look at the youth, and we feel like they're one of the one of our our greatest assets, and they can become um, competent. Uh, we've had students to come out of that program and to go on and further their uh, their education. Um, we have two uh, students uh, today that uh, have gone into the private sector um, and done very well, even with. Um, with the training and going on to uh, to get uh, degrees in uh, computer information systems. So we look at it uh, really as another way to reach out and to enable our communities here in Raleigh. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to come back to the uh, to discuss more about some of the uh, youth uh, aspects and, and helping low-income communities. I, would, I do want to talk about the um, assessing of your uh existing resources existing fiber and other resources be they human resources or uh organization resources how do you do a good analysis to kind of bring all that stuff out because some i've been in places where uh folks have had no clue that they've had dark fiber they've had no clue that uh there were public works projects that would allow a conduit to be laid at the same time. I mean, people just, you know, they just weren't aware of it. And the bigger the city, probably the bigger this challenge is. Um, but but how do you how do you tackle that? So uh, um, I, I would say that um, I kind of cheated a bit in that I came from uh, two cities um, and had two very different experiences. Uh, one was uh, Austin, Texas. I was CIO. Uh, there and there early in my career working on a project that was uh, actually putting sonnet rings ar around the city. And uh, the sonnet rings were used in collaboration with the university and uh, the state of Texas and some private entities um, as a means of telecommunications. So I had the opportunity at that time to um, build um, the governance model around that and get people involved and figure out who was going to pay for it. And and, and it really was uh, the catalyst for a lot of the companies that ended up moving into Austin from the West Coast because of the communications infrastructure. So that was proven to me from a career perspective that I saw at work. When I went over to uh, Kansas City, Missouri as, as CIO, uh, we were in the process there of doing uh, quite a bit of economic development in the city, and particularly downtown. And I was um, given the responsibility 
of working on a sports arena there, the telecommunications associated with that. And we put a, a, a conduit bank in uh, the outer perimeters of the sports arena, and that that conduit bank ended up being used as the telecom hotel for all of the uh, hotels and some of the economic development um, in the area. And uh, my first customer there was was Sprint. So, you know, I saw how economic development uh, was driven um, by uh, technology infrastructure. So I, I cheated a bit, and when I came to Raleigh, Raleigh really felt to me um, like Austin did in the early days and that, you know, all the right things were happening in terms of innovation, in terms of having um, uh, council people that, that understood innovation and economic development and that were uh, willing and reasonable to, to listen to how technology can be a catalyst for uh, sustainable economic development. So it kind of it, it felt right, and I think that you know it's just a repeat of that. So what we're talking about here today is a gigabit um, uh, fiber infrastructure, but really it's been infrastructure for a very long time in terms uh, of driving uh, innovation. And you know we use the analogy of of roads and bridges. So mm-hmm. you know it's it's really just the, the it's the new it's the new infrastructure, and we right. know that we have to have it. So I think we're I think we're a bit ahead of the game here in terms of it being gigabit speed. I think we're a bit ahead of the game, but I really don't think that that will be the case five years from now. So you know we're seeing that demand, and um, we're looking for ways to to measure. Um, the success of these networks. I haven't seen much, Craig, out there in terms of, you know, how do we really measure value? But mm-hmm. we're we're absolutely following uh, Seattle, um, Kansas City. We're absolutely following some of these early adopters, so we can begin to see um, the value and measure that value because I think that will ultimately be important. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yes, you and I talked about this a little bit yesterday, the fact that um, it is very difficult to get um, measurements uh, because those cities that are on the front edge, especially in the front edge of having a gigabit-type network, are just now starting to do research. And it's going to take a while before, you know, you can do enough research to figure out what exactly was caused by broadband and what was just influenced by a gigabit versus being, you know, directly impacted by a gigabit. And so a lot of that stuff is going to take time. And we're going to have to be satisfied with um, anecdotal evidence and, you know, and and proof as we go kind of thing. I would imagine that's kind of how... The, the cities there in the triangle are looking at this. Absolutely. I, I think what will happen initially, um, and, and certainly what I've seen in Kansas City, is just the hype. I mean, <laughs> the <laughs> hype, it's not it's not bad having the hype. But what I've seen uh, there in terms of the fiber hoods, um, my, my, my daughter and her husband uh, live in Kansas City, and um what i'm what I'm seeing there is the the creative thinking around you know the the development of think tanks you know mm-hmm. having the Kaufman Institute there, and some of what I'm seeing because it's just it's positioned people to begin to to think differently about what used to be impossible mm-hmm. and then I also believe that what we'll see ultimately is that the institutions will begin to somewhat branch off and define value for them. So you'll you will have, you know, the health institutions kind of branch off and think about uh ways in which to use a gigabit network for teaching, uh, for research. And then you'll have schools that will begin to think about um mobile applications and and uh, uh hands-on learning and, you know, the benefits to to students. And you'll have, of course, uh, universities. And then, then, you know, let's not forget the private sector and those individuals that, you know, um, are venture capitalists and, and that really want to find innovative 
uh, solutions to problems. And then, and then I would, and then I would also say that there are um, opportunities for um, for individuals to to begin to do home based businesses. So you know, there there um, this gigabit network really has an impact on individuals. You know, I tell the story, and I've got a, a meeting next week with the chamber, and I tell the story of, about my daughter. My daughter lives in Kansas City, Missouri. She works for a company here in the Research Triangle Park, and part of her her job her her job is you know to to exchange lots of information and to use video as she's you know in her at home office. So there's some enabling there in regard to. Um, the way people work today. So for companies not having to build uh, brick-and-mortar operations and that can be in cities where there are high-speed communities, there there has to be advantages there for both the corporation and the individual. So I think the, the, the beauty in, in this is that it's going to cause people to start thinking in ways that they have not thought before. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think that's a uh, <laughs> that's a very much a given is this whole thing about uh, generating new thought and getting people to move down in different directions. Let me ask a logistical sort of question. Um, yesterday, uh, as I mentioned, I was in a um, meeting of California communities uh, in Northern California here that are planning a broad- broadband initiative. So there are probably 24 of us cities, towns, and whatever. And they came back, the, the the steering committee that's driving this regional planning exercise came back with two sets of recommendations. One dealt with infrastructure and infrastructure issues. The other one dealt with applications. In other words, the how do you do it kind of thing. Have you either, as the city of Raleigh, or has, have each of the cities involved in this project Created like a I don't know a, a, a two um, I don't know two tiered or a two pronged uh, governing uh, slash operating group committee that will work on each of these two things in parallel or how do you how do you or, or are you addressing in any specific way you know the fact that you have infrastructure and that is a monumental set of tasks and then you have to at some point start creating the applications that drive the use of the network and that's an equally or maybe greater set of, you know, monumental challenges. Structurally, how are you dealing with that? So um, from a governance perspective, we have had um, discussions around how these things will be managed. And I I think that we're really relying on the creativity of the proposers to come to the table and, and say to us what pieces and parts they feel um, they could manage well and and what pieces and parts uh need to stay with the uh respective uh communities so we haven't completely gotten there in the, um yet but but we do have a governing body that um has been pulled together with representatives from each of the communities and the universities to begin to um work with um the coordination that has to happen up front. Um, We all were given uh, the uh, responsibility of documenting our infrastructure, understanding where it is, um, really having some really good GIS depictions of um, our fiber and assets so that, you know, when when we come together that we're really able to talk about um, what we're putting putting forth. So the mm-hmm. next step, the next step in our process, and in, in between um, February uh, February first and these last few weeks, we've had a lot of discussion about governance and and you know how we come together and think collectively when necessary, and then how we separate and think individually when required. But the one thing that we've agreed agreed upon is that we would de- we would do more collective thinking than we would individual thinking. Mhm. Um that's a uh that's an interesting uh that's an interesting point of uh you know how to uh, how these are all kind of coming together in some interesting ways. 
what about the 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 regulatory aspect from the standpoint of um making it easier and actually let me rephrase that one of the uh you know criticisms if you will that Google placed against uh, states that it didn't look at cities that it didn't look at for its initial project were those in which local ordinances and permitting processes and so forth seem to be um, onerous, you know, because they're all about the speed, you know, just quickly get in and get it done, have as little pain and misery in doing it as as they possibly can. Um, What kinds of things can communities do, local governments do, to um, make these projects easier without um, abandoning their right, uh, not their right, but their responsibility to look after and guard the public interest and the public good. So I guess, you know, in summarizing your question is how do you cut through the bureaucracy? Well, yeah. And, <laughs> and you know, we own that. So basically um, what we're doing here is we're looking at our processes and we're understanding what kind of uh, policy we have in place that that is flexible, and then we're also understanding, um, you know, a, a learning exercise really from what we read about uh, the Google initiative. And you know, with my having worked in Kansas City for so many years, I, I understand um, what the bureaucracy is like there. And I mm-hmm. and again, I think that what it takes is some different thinking. So could that mean that the municipalities have to dedicate individuals to the permitting process around um, the GIGU initiative? You know, is that is that a resolve? Does it mean that we go to our city council and ask um, to change policy? Um, and there are some things that, you know, we won't bend on, you know, you know, open trenches, some of the things that are jeopardy to our public, um, we won't bend on, but there may be some room. So I think that, you know, understanding that, that uh, you know, policy is not always set in stone, that we continue to have the responsibility of pr- protecting our community, um, but also that, you know, we want to be flexible, that we, you know, really need to think through our processes I'm fortunate in that um, Raleigh is a very much an economic development uh, organization, and we have close relationships at the department head level. So I can sit down and have those conversations with um, my public utilities director, my public works director, and our planner. Our planner is is uh, president of the um, the APA and understands innovation because he's in cities where things are happening and he understands, you know, what we what we'll have to do to pull this off. So that's why I say that, you know, being here in Raleigh really is uh, reminiscent of being in Austin in the early days that I see that kind of uh reasonable um thought practice here and we um we we understand that some things are going to have to change. And I think that cities have to really kind of um, incorporate that into where they go um, when they think about these kinds of initiatives because they can't a gigabit a innovative gigabit network can't be built on yesterday's practices they they can't it's not going to happen so I think you know when you're educating and when you're educating your council and when you're talking amongst your your peers. I think that that has to be something that you agree has to happen moving forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I definitely can see where that makes sense. And an interesting, uh, I just uh, saw a Twitter message float by. Uh, in a related vein, it brings up this topic of economic gardening, which is, for, for those who may not have heard the phrase, um, if, for example, a community... Um, Oh, where is it? Uh, Pulaski, Tennessee, is one a good example. Of this built a uh, built a gigabit network. Um, they decided that they wanted to foster, encourage a lot of home-based businesses. 
they created a number of programs, you know, uh, getting people into low, you know, basic level accounting classes, basic level marketing classes, holding special seminars, bringing experts into town to talk to people about, you know, the, the, the ABCs of running a business. And the guy there that runs that or has driven that project, that gigabit project, talked about economic gardening, that the, the local government and the community and the local college, in essence, come together to create programs that foster and support those kinds of businesses that you can now create once you get that network into place. Does Raleigh and, you know, all your, and your other city partners, do they have similar plans or do they have, already have economic gardening as a, you know, already as a, a state of how they operate? Oh, I, I would say that they they already have some component of economic gardening in their in their communities. Um, I, I would also say, um, just speaking from my experience in, in Raleigh, I would say that that's part of what we do. So we have um, we have an incubator. I have a, a small business incubator that reports on in, into my office. So um, I would I would say that you know we're just finding trying to find ways to better enable those activities. So we want to uh, recruit and retain um, entities that are really uh, doing cutting edge type thinking and you know the more that we can provide uh an infrastructure that makes them competitive the better off we are mm-hmm. and one of, one of the examples um that that we use uh, or that um we have talked about here in Raleigh is our convention center so when the convention center was built we we did, we went through um an extra analysis to determine what kind of innovation needed to be in that convention center for them to begin to recruit uh, venues that were um, high-tech venues like the Internet Summit, uh, the Internet 2 Conference. And we've been successful in that. And, you know, that, again, is the same kind of model and example that I saw in um, in Austin, in, in Kansas City, that actually it does drive economic development because if we have uh, more conferences, uh, more people attending conferences in, in the city, uh, they're spending money. So and there are more jobs because there's more of a need. There's mm-hmm. more service jobs. Um, there are more professional jobs, and there is uh, more uh, more of a demand. So we we you know we we initially put uh, Wi-Fi downtown, and then we had to do another ring, and and here most uh, most recently we've got a third ring uh, going in, and then uh, 125 miles of fiber in a 148 miles city. So what we're seeing here is that we're being driven by demand. Our our convention center uh, director says you know. Yeah, we you know we've got Wi-Fi on the outer perimeters. Um, we've got Wi-Fi inside the building, but you know these people are. We've got it in the downtown city center, and there was there's a little bit of a gap between the downtown city center and the outer perimeters of the convention center. So we had to find a way to put it on the outside perimeters of the convention center. Mm-hmm. So now we're competing. Now we're competing with venues that would go to the west coast. So you know we're seeing all kinds of ways that we can drive uh, economic development which 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 you know drives uh job growth and but then we we're not naive in thinking that we don't have to do partnerships with the community college and the universities to uh to 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 um basically help our students and our youth to be ready for the workforce so it is an ecosystem I think that city of Raleigh and I know that the other municipalities that I work with get it. They get it. And you can you can tell that by some of our stats here in the region. They get it and and they're working in the same fashion. Mhm. Let me I'm going to paraphrase one a comment made by one of the um audience members here in the chat room. The way that we currently use um 
call it real estate uh, marketing as a, you know as an economic tool. We want to get more people using the real estate, filling up buildings, you know, commercial buildings and so forth, because ultimately it has an economic development impact. Do you see a similar kind of I don't know set of activities coming together in terms of how real estate people, uh, in essence, market homes? Uh, you know, using the lure of, of the gigabits. In essence, you know, move into this neighborhood, move into this community because all these homes have access to, you know, gigabit capability. And if you want to do a home-based business, if you want to do, you know, professional development on, you know, on your own at night, you know, using online courses, we have these homes in this community that's a gigabit community. Do you see that kind of real estate marketing starting to happen? Well, I I see it in uh, I see it in, in Kansas City. I think um, there is um, there are examples there where um, developers are uh, deciding where to build in fiber hoods so that these uh, these homes are gigabit ready, and then in turn that it that is um, attracting individuals that you know need that kind of speed to either run a business or do a job for a corporation. So again, I think it's it's a win win model for both the individual and the and the company, uh, particularly when the company um, is paying for the connectivity for the individual to do a job, and it's a competitive uh, pricing structure. I think you know there's just that's just a pretty simple ROI. So I believe that. The whole idea of real estate and uh, and the the gigabit development, you know, to, to to move into a home. Don't you wish you lived in a home that had gigabit speed? I sure do. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, so I I think you know on an entertainment side, on a uh, on a from a career perspective, from a perspective of individuals that are are doing development and technology and and think tanks. Uh, one of the articles I read um, about the Google initiative it, uh, related to an individual that um, either bought a home or or rents a home and um, allows um, startups to actually come and live in the home um, as they start their businesses because the home has or will have um, gigabit speed. So it's kind of like a hoteling model around having the resources that one would need in order to um to get a job done. So yeah, I see and and then you know if you think about from a commercial perspective, you know, what can happen with some of the abandoned buildings if they were rehabbed and had gigabit speed. So, you know, there's always need a need for uh data centers, you know, and we're getting more into uh cloud technology and you know we've got in the United States we've got warehouses we've got uh buildings that you know could be repurposed so mm-hmm. yes i see this uh, you know again as being as uh, as paramount to the US as our as our uh, as a good road and bridge uh, situation mhm we've got about 5 minutes left here and and to to wrap this thing up this is all personal, isn't it? I mean, when I say personal, I mean it's about people. You and I, again, we had this conversation offline about all of the people aspects of how this network can imp- uh, can impact low-income communities, how it can bridge not only like this digital divide but the education divide and so forth. Um, in summary, what's the personal side of uh, this initiative? How will people benefit from this? So uh, I'll start with I'll start with myself, and I will say that it absolutely is uh, personal for for me uh, to be able to uh, be a public servant and to provide uh, um, a solution. It's just technology, you know. It could be healthcare, or, but to provide a solution that gives people options that helps them to understand that all of this is available to them, that they're global citizens. Um, I have seen so many young people 
um, who have been involved uh, with this initiative here and other in other places as well, when the light goes on for them and they begin to understand that there really are no limitations, that they can, you know, communicate and express themselves, that they have a voice, um, they understand that, you know, being part of the community in many ways is the solution to community problems. Uh, when we when we take the underserved uh, issues into into account, I would ask, what other solutions have many people seen work? Um, I have absolutely seen the whole concept of digital literacy being conducive to changing lives in in many ways. And, you know, as that silly commercial said, you can't put a dollar value on that. So absolutely, um, for me, a a person-to-person effort that um, has um, changed lives and will help to to continue to transform um, what we think about ourselves and and how we enable communities to help themselves. Mm-hmm. How do we get the this importance though in into the political discourse beyond soundbite advocacy? I mean, I feel that um, you know if you can get a politician to talk about broadband, you know, at any level above you know, mayors and maybe county commissioners, you sort of sit there and wonder, well, are these people really understanding or are they just kind of parroting the, the top five phrases that get recycled over? I mean, do 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 those do those folks at the state legislature, in the governor's office, you know, at the federal level, are they really getting this issue that broadband is personal? I don't know, Craig. That's a, that's a that's a good question. I would probably say that some do. Um, some absolutely um, are a result of, um, you know, technology impacting uh, their lives. But I'll just put it in from this from this perspective. I would say that it is uh, incumbent on municipal uh, CIOs from those uh, those people who come from the knowledge platform that understand this at the most um, minute level. I think it, it is their responsibility to continue to educate, to get the word out, to have those sensitive conversations one-on-one if, if that's what it takes. Um, I've had to do some of that here. And and, and, and then to, to, to continue to drive forward the benefits and talk about the benefits and, and market the benefits. So I, I don't know that they all understand it, I would say that most people would uh, embrace it if they did, and many times for any of us, it takes someone coming to us really getting personal with us and explaining and showing um, the the ROI for human beings when um, they're given options. Mm-hmm. That's going to be... Um I can see quite a challenge, but you know, I also, as as you're describing that, I can see, you know, maybe it's incumbent upon some folks, particularly us, us broadband advocate types, to somehow launch or influence some sort of educational campaign in which people to is, you know, are the people aspect, you know, because I mean, the two things that politicians respond to are money and votes. Yeah. And if we don't have, you know, truckloads of money, the next thing on, on the line are the people aspects. You know, these are things that voters care about. And we only have about a minute, but that's my sort of my parting thought, if you had a comment or, or sort of reaction to that. I, I completely agree with it. And, you know, one of the mottos I use uh, pay, uh, when I raise my kids, pay now, pay later. So, you know, mm-hmm. I think you have to take every advantage you can to put all those resources up front so that people become uh, prosperous and independent. Mm-hmm. So, Gail, this has been a very good conversation. I'm extremely happy to hear good things of a gigabit nature coming out of North Carolina because we weren't sure, you know, what was going to be next there. And so this looks good. This looks like a very good, a very strong start. 
Uh, we should probably coin the phrase gigabit region now that uh, mm-hmm. the uh, commissioner has uh, has coined gigabit city and, uh, and continue to move this forward. So I wish you much continued success. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for asking what we're doing here. It's important oh, sure. to get the word out. No worries. Well, you have a great day. Let me know when the RFP comes out. Again, thank you, and also thank you to our audience for being with us uh, on the show today. Goodbye. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.